So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome back to Inside the Mind of Champions. I hope you had a great Easter weekend if you were celebrating that. Thanks so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. And I know our community is building around the world with the show climbing in the charts across India, Qatar and Hong Kong. Thanks to everyone who's sharing the show with your work colleagues. I know lots of people have embedded this into their internal learning platforms and that's great to see. Or teachers sharing it with students or even sharing it with your mates down the pub. It's a massive commitment to make the show every week, but when I know it's helping you, it's really worth it. Remember, I'd love to answer your personal questions or performance challenges, so you can send those through to hello at sportingedge.com and I'll make a mini show edit out of your question with a few of the answers from our library. I thought I'd take this opportunity to remind you that I'll be personally guiding a group of aspiring leaders through our flagship programme, The Winning Mindset for Leaders, starting on the 9th of May. If you want to take your leadership to the next level with strategies on how to boost your emotional intelligence, manage hybrid teams or lead a change initiative across your business, then just visit sportingedge.com and look for the Winning Mindset for Leaders programme in our digital coaching program section. So today's session is an abridged interview that I did a few weeks ago for our members community. These mastermind events are very special and the guest for this particular event wasn't the biggest name we've interviewed, but he certainly had one of the biggest impacts. Let's dive straight into the recording where I introduce David Smith, MBE. Today's focus is a mastermind Q&A, and I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's an incredible story, but an incredible topic as well. I think we've you know, all faced massive uncertainty. We've needed to be resilient. We've needed to, to think positively, have an optimistic mindset. Um, you know, We've been asked to be tenacious and start again. Uh, and I can't think of anyone more inspirational, actually, somebody who's taught himself to walk again four times or five times, somebody whose athletic achievements are brilliant, but whose psychological and emotional achievements, I think, are completely off the chart. And I've been very lucky to meet some incredible people, but uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce David Smith. He's a gold medal winner, uh, a Paralympic rower and cyclist. Um, he's got an incredible story around his battle with cancer 
and is also a student of the mind. He's done a master's degree in psychology. He's thinking of embarking in a master's degree in neuroscience, and he's a really incredible guy. So please welcome David Smith. How are you, mate? Good to see you. I'm very well. Thank you very much. It's great to see you. Good. Well, I'm sure you heard that uh, glowing uh, intro there. Uh, I'm sure you're cringing, but uh, it's it's true. You know, I, I met you a, a few months back at a, another event and you sort of spoke at that uh, event and I was completely inspired by your story. Um, I think, you know, not not a headline athlete. We'll hear about your, you know, friendships with people like Chris or you've stolen all the limelight, but I think your achievements are incredible to be honest. But just to set the scene, could you give us a bit of background on your early years and growing up in Scotland and the role that sort of sport and exercise played in that for us? No, certainly and thank you it's, it's very nice to virtually meet everyone today um so yeah a little bit more about me as Jeremy says I'm not a, a headline athlete my friends always steal the headlines away from me um, but I'm always in the background chipping away and, and showing up every day and my, my sporting journey really started in the, the highlands of Scotland I grew up in a little village called Newton Moor which is very close to Aviemore and if you've not heard of either of them, it's near Inverness. And if you've not heard of Inverness, then that's kind of close to the Loch Ness Monster, which a drunk Scotsman once stumbled across. I'm sure you're all familiar with sort of the location of where I am. So, you know, I grew up in the mountains. So my natural love, I fell in love with the mountains. I wasn't incredibly academic. I think my teachers in every school report I had said if David applied himself better, he would do better. Um, so I, I wasn't very ac academic. I used to sit in school and look out into the mountains. And my, my first love was uh, skiing. I started skiing at the age of three. My dad took me up onto the ski mountain and, and I fell in love with skiing. At the same time, uh, when you're born in a little village in the Highlands, the first thing that's put into your hand is not a football, a rugby ball or a cricket bat. It's a shinty stick. And for those that are not familiar with shinty, it's a, a mix of hurling and hockey with no rules is kind of how the Scots define it. But it's a very passionate game in Scotland. It's a team game. So it's all about learning to work within team at such a young age. And it's a pretty tough sport. It's uh, shinty is a, a little leather ball that travels at sort of 70, 80 mile an hour when it's hit. And there's 12 players either side. And the objective is to put the ball in the opposing net. And it's a... Uh, very basic, very simple, but it gives you the, the learnings of what sport teaches you at a very young age. So I, I fell in love with, with shinty and skiing, and that wasn't enough. I needed to do more sport. Um, I played competitively in shinty, won numerous Scottish titles as a junior, and then a, a local karate club started in the village, and, and I persuaded my mum to take me to this karate club where I fell in love with karate, and that became really my drive and force. I, I went on to compete for Great Britain in three world championships, traveling to Japan and, and training and studying under some of the top instructors in Japan. At the same time, I was also skiing in the winter, water skiing in the summer. And I really just fell in love with moving my body. There was no dream of being an Olympian. Uh, Aviemore, for actually a statistical data, has produced more Olympians per head per population than anywhere else in the UK. We have a, a tremendous output of Olympic skiers but I didn't want to go to Olympics. Uh, I just loved moving my body. The challenge for me was exploring how far could David Smith push psychologically and physically, how far could I take myself? And it wasn't really until the age of around about 18, 19 that I started to fall in love with the, with the Olympics. I'd been in South Africa on a training camp with the karate and I'd come out of the dojo after sort of being 
I guess in many ways is beat up for the best part of three, four hours, uh, kicked in the head, punched in the head, and and you know learning the lessons of of basically resilience at a very young age. And I came out and I seen a there was a runner thrown up at the side of the track, and I just thought, wow, that looks that looks amazing. And he's not being beat up. What is that? And that, that sparked my curiosity to to look into more of why he was thrown up at the side of the track. And that's where I started to sort of fall in love with athletics and fall in love with the, the idea of, of becoming an Olympian. So in those early years, the, some of the medical challenges that you faced, the, there was a, a misdiagnosis of epilepsy, wasn't there, that sort of got in the way a little bit? Yeah, so the first challenge I, I seen, and I always try to use perception here, and obviously as a youngster, perception is something that we're not so familiar with, but I always tried to perceive the obstacles that were presented in life as challenges and not as threats and you know we have a, a much more positive outcome and we we really show up to them more than rather than running away from them so the, the first challenge I really faced was that I was born with club feet so both my feet were fused backwards and one in a thousand children are now born with with palapaces it's known as so I had my feet repeatedly broken and reset into special plaster casts and there was one evening that they wore, I had to wear special boots and I always liken it to the movie Forrest Gump. If you can think of that, he had these special boots on and the doctor said to my parents, whatever you do, never, don't take these boots off or your child will, will potentially lose his legs. And my parents were having this debate at sort of two o'clock in the morning of whether to take the boots off. I was excruciating in, in a lot of pain, screaming. Obviously as a baby, I couldn't really communicate to them. It was just a, a, a gargle of screams and, and noise, but it was clear I was in pain. So they actually thankfully made a decision to take the boots off. And when they took the boots off, both of my legs were black from the knee down. So if they'd, if they'd left those boots on, I, I would for sure have, have been a double amputee from the knees down. But at the same time, I was also potentially born with a very, very rare genetic tumour that sits in my spinal cord at C4 to C6. So for the people who are not familiar where that is in the spine, that's in this area here. So it's a very important part of the spinal cord and it's, it's very high up. And what was happening is when I was laid down to sleep at night, the, this is all a hypothesis, we're not entirely sure, but the tumour pressed on the nerve root to the lungs which then stopped me breathing and my face started to go blue and I started to go into a convulsion which represented epilepsy so of course a high state of panic in the house a 999 call which resulted in an ambulance being rushed to hospital five times before the age of 10 and through that childhood obviously they were like well they want to know why what's the why behind this convulsion and stopping breathing in the the logical thing was that I had epilepsy. So they put me on epileptic medication for most of my childhood, which obviously has a huge impact on neural development in the brain, on you know things like depression, and just generally on focus and concentration. And I think that's where sport played such a key role in my early years, because it gave me an outlet where I could actually focus on something long enough to develop skills and, and to actually develop my concentration. But those early years... I believe those early years really shaped who I became as an adult. Uh, they had a massive impact on, on me and uh, they were very traumatic. But there's a, a great study from Harvard that was the longest study ever conducted, the 75-year study on people flourishing in life. And they found those who had the most flourishing, meaningful life were those who had actually wrestled with some real hard questions. And I think I was already wrestling with them before the age of five. Uh, it's really interesting that adversity and that, um, you know, in those early years, there's a lot, I mean, a lot of people listening will 
know the growth mindset you know theory that that if you you know talented and sail through everything often that can be uh, you know a, a sort of negative if you hit some failures or some setbacks whereas if you believe that it's your tenacity and the hard work and the adaptability that you've got within you that can drive your success then it then no matter what obstacles are put in your way uh, you're able to thrive and, and find a way through it so that's really interesting that that mirrors your experiences so as you went through that next phase then you you studied at bath university you're into your skiing um you know tell us a little bit about that next phase once you'd you'd moved on yeah, so the, the athletics career was was quite short because of the, the tumour was pes- pressing on the central nervous system. I had issues with my feet. And what I found, again, going back to the growth mindset, as one door closed, I was already looking for, for the next door. And I knew I had some fairly decent speed on the running track. And there was an opportunity to, to push a bobsleigh that, that arose. I, I was obviously in Aviemore. I was very keen on winter sports. And there was an advert that popped up saying we're, you know, we're looking, recruiting for brakemen and drivers. So I thought, you know, what, this looks like a great fun sport to do. And I phoned up uh, Bath University and said, look, I'm, I'm quite keen. And this is my stats. I'm six foot four. I can run this time. And I, I'd ran 49 seconds for 400. So it was no, nowhere near Olympic time, but it was still still pretty fast time and a time that the Bobsley team would look at. And before I knew it, I would sort of, packed up i was standing at the top of a track in Lillehammer, uh ready to push a bobsleigh and that sort of set off a very short troublesome career as a bobsledder again the, the tumor was causing huge amounts of issues as i had done my whole life pressing on the, the the central nervous system i was constantly fatigued my physiology what was definitely sending me lots of signals and it wasn't working for me so i was putting all of this work in and i'm getting very little out so I spent most of my career uh, on the sidelines, watching on from the sideline. And that is, is seriously damaging to your self-efficacy, your self-confidence, self-esteem. And you then start to have the words of, I'm not good enough, I'm not enough in, in your internal dialogue. And at that point, I was very fortunate, again, to be in the right place at the right time with a, an optimistic view. And a job came up with the British Olympic ski team working as a coach. And at the same time, I was also enrolled on my degree at Bath University studying sports performance. And I I snapped that job. That was an an incredible opportunity. Uh, Unfortunately, the very first race I was at, I also found that I wasn't ready to coach yet. I still had the burning desire in my stomach. And I guess my values and my first principles were very much still about, I wanted to be the best in the world. I wanted to put everything on the line. And I just, at that point, probably wasn't ready to coach. I'd come into that job a little bit early, but I did spend uh, a couple of seasons with the Olympic ski team and, and working with skiers such as Dave Ryden, who's gone on to be you know, one of one of Britain's most successful sportsmen and creating history by being the first British person ever to win a, a World Cup race. And I remember Dave when he was a junior and as doing drills in, in the car park, warming up. And, you know, for me to sit now and watch what he's achieved, I, I, I can take a, a lot of, uh, you know, satisfaction from knowing that I had a very, very small part in, in his life and his life story. So that it was a really, it was a great opportunity for me. Um, but I knew from the first minute I was there that I was still had the burning desire to compete and I, I wasn't done with sport just yet. So was that the transition then into rowing, into the para rowing team? It was, yeah. And, and again, that this was a very interesting transition because whilst I was working with the ski team, I also 
was obviously suffering from lots of medical conditions. So I still had lots of pain in my back, lots of pain in my neck. I was still fatigued and I couldn't understand why. So I was still seeing a lot of medical practitioners on the side. And I was working with a physio one day and the physio said, you actually classify for Paralympic sport, not because of your tumor, because this was currently undiagnosed, but actually because of your club foot. And this sparked off a whole uh, conversation. And actually that conversation ultimately saved my life. And the reason for being is if I hadn't transferred to Paralympic sport, the tumor wouldn't have been found the way it was found. And I, I possibly wouldn't be sitting speaking with you today. So I left that physio room went back to the ski station I, I was we were in Austria and I just kept thinking wow like this is an opportunity London have the games it's an opportunity to to become a you know an Olympian Paralympian at my home games um, I had no idea what sport I was going to do I just thought let me go with an open mind again approaching every day with a, a level of curiosity and, and encouraging compassion which I've always done and see what happens. And I contacted the British Paralympic Association. They had a, a day at Loughborough University. And I went along and I, I took part in a, a series of tests. And the very last test that day was a, a three minute rowing test. And I remember jumping on the row, row machine. It was the first time I think I'd ever got on a machine. And I pulled a time that was not far off what they would identify as a world-class start for an able-bodied athlete. And I think it was probably a week later, I had a call from British Rowan and then two weeks later, I was living in Caversham, training with uh, with the British Rowan team, which, uh, see, everything seemed plain sailing. It seemed like I had this direct route to the games. Uh, little did I know that uh, basically my whole world was about to come crumbling down. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible trajectory that you're talking about there, and everything was set up for... You know, if we look back at the 2012 Olympics, I mean, it, it was an incredible success story. But I think one of the most memorable things was the scale of the Paralympic Games and how, you know, the public completely embraced that more than probably any other Olympics that I can remember. Obviously, we're a bit biased in the UK with that. But certainly I can imagine how exciting it would be to be, you know, just months away from selection on that. But then, of course, you got the news that, the, the tumour was there and can you tell us a little bit about how that happened and you know the, the sort of situation the emotional context of that you know hammer blow yeah so I, I just won the world championships and I'd come back from the worlds and I started to suffer the pain I'd been feeling my whole life and the fatigue really started to increase and ramp up and I was getting excruciating pain in my neck my my wrists my hands and I, I started to feel my body just slowly stopping to work it was like almost like it was stopping to move and then I'd wake up in my sleep and not be able to walk or stand so I remember going into the physio and saying look there's something wrong with me and I'm not sure what it is and at the same time one of the physiologists was also tracking my sleep and it showed that I was getting no sleep I was constantly going to the bathroom maybe on, on average 40 times a day so at the same time there was all these experts within British Row and I was also seeing my NHS doctor to say, look, whatever I've been experiencing for the last 20 years is now really starting to magnify. I really, I'm not feeling well. And for 20 years, they'd said I just was training too hard. I was doing too much sport. So I just needed to rest more or drink more water. Or There was always like a reason for feeling tired or in pain. But the more that the team at British Row investigated, we started to think, right, we, we need to send for a series of tests so when you tell a doctor that you are going to the toilet 
40 times a day, the first thing they want to send you for is a Eurodynamics. At that point, I'd never heard the word Eurodynamics. So I got on a train from the British Home Base up to London. I walked into a hospital and I was the youngest person in the corridor by probably 40 years. And I was like, what is this Eurodynamics test? And um, I should have Googled this before going and I probably wouldn't have gone. Uh, so I, I went into the room. They obviously have to put a catheter in. The catheter, it took six attempts to get the catheter in. Then they put another catheter in. They fill you full of dye and they scan you. And out of the whole experience, this is the one that's so traumatic because it was it was a point where it was in so much pain. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And when I went to empty the dye, I remember sort of passing out, not fully, but the dye started running, entering into the bucket. It started spraying across the room. So I managed to spray the doctor and the nurse with all of this dye that was running out of me. So there was a, I look back kind of laughing at that point, thinking, God, I wonder if they, they remember the guy who sprayed them. But this was the yeah. <laughs> exactly so. So this was the start of a of a week of horrible tests to see if there was something wrong with the bladder, and it came back that there was nothing wrong with the bladder. And at the same time, my physio did a very light manipulation on my neck one day, and I went home. I went out for coffee and and almost fainted. Uh, and I phoned him and said, Look, "Whatever you've done to my neck today, something it's triggered something." So immediately they were like, well, we better scan your neck because it's quite common to have a bulging disc. And this is what they thought. They thought, well, you probably have a bulging disc, which we have to treat. So I, I had the scan. I went to Windsor for the results. And the neurologist at that time just held up the scan and said, look, um, there's a what looks like a, a huge tumor inside your spinal cord. And I just didn't even absorb that news. I sat and looked at him and was like, well, I, I go to Italy in two days time uh, to prepare for, for this season. What, what, what does this mean? And he's like, well, to be honest with you, this is above me. I, I need to refer you an uh, emergency referral to, to a neurosurgeon. And before I knew it, I was sat in front of a neurosurgeon and he was telling me that they were going to cut the front of my neck open, cut into the vertebrae, into the spinal cord to remove the tumor. They would put me back together and in three to four months, I could be back in a boat. And uh, to sit and have that dealt to you in this in this moment in time is it's so overwhelming. And there's you know there's no course in school about cancer. There's no course on how to deal with this sort of news. Um, and you just automatically go into into thought. So your ability to critically think, the ability for you're to be able to have this stimulus to the response and have that space that Victor Frankl spoke so poetically about that just goes, that space is gone. You're just an emotional reactive human who's been told that they're potentially going to die. And so to try and stay in a mode of critical thinking at that point is, is impossible. Um, and I just remember leaving the surgeon with a million questions, completely unaware what to do. I got in my car and drove to the British Rome base and, and got onto a bike and started cycling on the indoor bike. And one of the Olympic rowers came over and he's like, oh, you know, you don't look too well. What's wrong? And I said, I've just been diagnosed with a tumor and I'm not sure if I'm going to live or die. And the color from his face just drained. And at that point, I was like, oh, this is quite serious. And, and he didn't even know what to say. And uh, a week later, yeah, I was um, I was sitting in a hospital gown with ridiculous hospital socks on, worrying and worrying how I looked. It's, it's crazy when I look back and think of this, that the ego was more concerned about how I looked. And I walked down to anaesthetic with the back of the gown wide open, flashing my 
my uh, rear to the whole hospital. Um, and then before I knew it, I was sat on an anesthetic table and the only thought in my mind was like, is this the last thing I'm ever going to see? And I don't, I don't want to be here. This is not a choice of my own. I've never chose to, to be here. And all of a sudden I'm in this room with, a, with complete strangers and having these tubes and pipes put into me and, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm not in control of this situation. And, and that was the start of a journey that uh, there's been meadows one along the way, but it was really a start of a journey that the real race and the real purpose was actually to, to stay alive. I'm sure you'll agree this is a remarkable story and I can't even imagine what David was going through as he had this diagnosis dealt to him. His courage is truly inspirational and wrestling with his own mind would prove to be the biggest battle he's ever faced. He was so open and honest with our members community during this event and I know everyone was left reflecting deeply on their own lives, their priorities and their own well-being. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is an example of the Members Club events that we hold to bring like-minded people together and learn in a safe community with champions like David. I was very keen to share some of this content with you via the free-to-air podcast, so we've shortened the one-hour session for you today. But if you do want to watch the whole interview, then visit sportingedge.com forward slash membership. You can set up your own profile and then use the code podcast100 in the discount code box and you'll receive a free month and you'll be able to explore our incredible digital library. It's packed with world-class thinkers. There's about 100 in there giving you bite-sized solutions to everyday challenges in life and work. And you can use some of the insights in your one-to-ones to kick off a virtual meeting or even to prime people's thinking ahead of a corporate event. So let's move to the final section of the interview with David, where he shares more of his powerful daily strategies. Clearly your purpose and passion is helping other people now. I know you've got into your coaching and and your story is so inspirational. I've heard you talk before about your sort of daily morning routine. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You've spoken about happiness, but that that sort of the way you set yourself up each day would be great to hear. Yeah, so again, I quickly realized that when you when you wake before your morning routine, it's the night routine, you know. So if you have a rough sleep, you wake up feeling drowsy or not so great. So I always have I'm very strict on my sleep hygiene the night before. You know, no no technology in the bedroom and, and I do my breathing and sleep to down regulate so I get the best sleep because my inner narrative is very powerful around tumors. So if I'm left with my race in mind, my race in mind is telling me you're going to die. Your tumor is going to come back. You're going to be paralyzed from the neck down, unable to breathe. So I can't sit with that too often because it becomes very consuming. So I, that's why I go to the breath in the night. And I downregulate. Most of the time I get a, a pretty decent sleep. And then when I wake up in the morning, I also find this is the best time to do the inner work. You, even if you're a snoozer, I don't advocate hitting the snooze button. But if you do hit the snooze button, that eight minutes, use that eight minutes to do your your focused attention or mindfulness, your breathing work, just connect with your body. So I I try to connect with my body every morning before getting up. I just put fingers on the side of my ribs and just look for them just to sort of expand in and out as I breathe. I slow my breath down to sometimes three breaths a minute. And during that time, I just connect to my breathing. And then I 
all of us go to gratitude. I always say one thing I'm grateful for, and I set one intention for the for the morning, for that first 90 minute window. I just say, right, there's one thing I want to get done in this first 90 minutes that's going to drive me forward in, in life. I put my feet on the floor and I always say to my feet, I, I'm so thankful for you. Because I think this is something that so many of us take for granted. We're we're rushing to the next thing. And I think one of the biggest challenges we face in, in humankind at the moment is that we, we struggle to be present. We struggle to be fully engaged in the moment because there's too many things pulling us all over the place. We're either living in the past or we're living in a future that doesn't exist yet. And actually just to be fully present in the moment, if you think of your breakfast table, what that looks like in the, mor in the morning, are you sitting around the breakfast table with your family all on your phones? You're not present. You're not with the people you love. And I, I'm very conscious on this. And this is something I think I'm very, very passionate about because after 12 years of spending time in ICU units, seeing people say goodbye to their loved ones, how many times do you communicate to the people in your network and the people you love how much you value them? Because we're in such a hurry that I started to think about in the what I do the night in the mornings and in the night I meditate my own death. And I know this is not for everybody. It's a stoic belief. But for me, it's been very, very important. It's when I meditate on my own death, it stops me procrastinating, but also helps me reach out to those people who are really important in my life to say, hey, you know what? I've got your back. I, I can feel you. I'm here for you if you need me. And I always say to myself, David, if this was the last day you were going to be alive, what would you do today? You know, the stuff that really enriches you, the stuff that you can grow. And now I do realize that some we obviously have to put roofs and house over our head and food on our table, but to make time for those things that are really passionate. And this is this has been very important. One of the things I've probably taken away from the time in, in the hospital is seeing people say goodbye to their to their loved ones. And that is those images haunt me to, to wake up one morning and the bed opposite you is now empty and, and that's a life that's gone. And I just think, wow, this is, you know, we're only here once, uh, depending on your beliefs, but uh, we're, we're only, it's not a dress rehearsal. Uh, one in two people are diagnosed with cancer. The most of the people I found on ICU units were CEOs who had had a stroke. Uh, and this was stuff that really, really alarmed me. And even last week, whilst I sat in oncology, there was not a seat free in the whole the whole oncology hospital. And I was like, wow, we need to make a bigger effort to be compassionate to ourselves, get on top of our self-care and be compassionate to others. So my morning routine is, is all about, it's very meaningful, very purpose, but very about connecting to the to myself and to the people I'm with and, and staying in the moment and, and being very thankful for being able to still, I'm very, very lucky. I'm paralyzed from the neck down, but I can still stand. So I'm very, very thankful that I, I, I can still stand and move around. I, I don't know how long I have to be alive. So I, I make the most of those mornings. Yeah. And, and again, you know, incredibly honest and incredibly raw and incredibly passionate and and i think it's so you know it's so much noise there and and we need a shock sometimes and i think hearing your story again is incredible helen's just typed in you know be where your feet are uh, and i think that's a great catchphrase and that ability to spend quality time with people and and spend time in the present rather than fast forwarding into, you know, fears or anxieties about the future, just be content with where you are. And, and 
not only has that helped you, you know, get through some of the darkest moments of your life, but they're also amazing life skills for us all to think about. And, um, you know, hopefully you have a, a, a long and healthy life with loads and loads of successes in front of you. So that's uh, something for us all to reflect on as we think about this session. There's one final question that came through. Um, who's your hero or who do you take inspiration from? So that, I think that's a great question. And I could just go to the normal Steve Redgrave, Chris Hoy, all of these, these people. Um, but for me, it, it's, it's the people I've come across on the journey in the hospital. You know, seeing, seeing them fight, there's no TV cameras on them. They are raw. That's who they are. So the people who inspire me the most are the people who live by their values and, you know, are genuinely kind, humble, good people. Uh, people who have learned to manage their ego and people who contribute to society in a, in a positive way. And you meet them at every turn. I think that, you know, we're, we're all a beacon of information and resilience and inspiration. And you don't have to look more further than your own house to find inspiration. And that's something that I really started to realize that as a kid, I was inspired to be these great athletes. And I think that's fantastic. Um, but inspiration can be fleeting. Uh, then you sometimes meet your hero and they're not who you thought they were. Uh, but there's certainly when I, I met a guy the very first day on radiotherapy and we got speaking and I said, you know, the question was, is, oh, what are you in for? And I was like, I told him mine. I said, what about you? He says, oh, I've, got, I've got a brain tumor. And he raced Formula 2. He was a street artist and a very outgoing Sicilian. And I, and I said, you know, what's, what's your prognosis? He says, well, I've probably got eight months left to live. The guy is still alive today. He's like, I refuse to die, Dave. I am fighting this. And he's like gone in such an amazing journey. So when I see these people or I see people in the spinal cord hospital who told they're never going to walk, but they are there every day in their wheelchair trying to stand. That for me is is, is an incredible place to, to, to grow strength from and, and inspiration. And I think for me, I tune into these memories if I'm struggling and, and say, or say, you know, what, what would, what would these people do on, on this day? And I think, yeah, it would be obviously easy for me to say all these great sports stars are inspirational, which they are. I do get, I do get a saying from them, but, you know, sitting watching the, the, the man who's been told he has six months to live fight for every breath. That's, that's a pretty powerful thing to see. Well, I can see some of the messages that are coming through the chat, David. I'm sure not everybody coming onto the call today and not everybody listening to this as the podcast version will have known your name and known your story. But I know that everybody that's been part of this will never forget your story. Uh, and that's quite a turnaround. And, and, and I think, you know, just on a personal note, I want to just thank you very much for, you know, being brave enough to tell it and being generous enough to tell it because, I think, as you say, we can all see gold medals shining, but that inner courage and that inner character is absolutely priceless. And you've definitely inspired me to make changes and, and I'm sure everybody else that's listening. So we will all definitely buy your book when it gets through the publishers, I'm sure. And if anyone listening um, is keen to get David involved in their business for a keynote speech or a webinar, then you've seen firsthand what, how inspirational that can be. So I just want to say thanks to everyone for tuning in. Uh, and thanks so much, David, for your story. And uh, we'll see you soon. No, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks a lot. Thank you. So there we have it. As I said at the end of the recorded session, David had a profound impact on myself and the group 
And I really hope his words in this powerful story have given you the time to reflect and think about what's important to you. We all take our health for granted and think we'll live forever. But to hear how David's battled with himself and his illness is truly remarkable. I think this puts all of our day-to-day frustrations into perspective and has certainly given me a really important reminder to pause and be grateful for what we have at the moment, but also a renewed focus on chasing down those goals with increased motivation. I've got loads of keynotes, workshops and webinars coming up with various clients in the coming weeks. So I'm really excited and I hope I'll get a chance to meet you if you're one of my clients that's listening. And if you'd like some support for your particular team, then just email me at hello at sportingedge.com and we can discuss the best way to inspire your team and your community. Until next time, stay safe and look after the people and the projects that matter to you most. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.